Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. I think a lot of us have dreams, and sometimes those dreams can frustrate us. (laughs) Sometimes those dreams become inconvenient. Sometimes it's easier to adjust your dream than it is to adjust your life. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. All right, good people. Welcome to another episode of the True Prescription Podcast. I am your humble host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. Today is a, is a special treat. I have my man that I've known for many years, Alan Boomer. What's going on, Alan? Sekou. Let me just say you, brother. Sekulio is what I call you, though, man. Alan is... Uh, I don't know Sekou. Y- yeah, I, I know. I barely know Dr. Gathers. I know, barely. I know Sekulio. Well, that is my name. But, yes. you know, people find it... You know, you try to make it easy for folks. But yes. I appreciate the Sekulio. That is my name. That is my God-given name. Alan is an interesting cat. I'll start from the beginning. So we met in college... Actually, we didn't realize this before, but our families knew each other even before college, which is a whole nother story. But we met in college, and I always admired Alan because, like me, he had that entrepreneurial spirit, that hustle. He started out with, I mean, I'm sure he had business before that, but in college he had 777 Productions, which was basically an entertainment company, is yes. essentially what it was. Him and his crew would put on parties, and the most entrepreneurial thing they did was actually bus trips down to Jacksonville and different locations. Daytona Beach. Daytona Beach for folks to just enjoy and have a good time. But it was like, it was a perfect business idea. You had to market right there. It was just all about promotion. I'm sure he made a few dollars. I always talk about it more than I had the fifth flow store. Yeah, I was going to say, don't forget that you had the store. That's right. That's right. Say, cool used to be in there selling the... Hot dogs. Oh, you had hot dogs too? Hot dogs. I remember you had like snacks, like Snickers bars, Skittles. All that. Yep. All the stuff that you as a doctor try to tell people to avoid, (laughs) you were supplying back in the day. That's right. That is correct. You are correct. So Alan left Morgan. I know while he was at Morgan, you were at, um, don't, don't, my memory is, what's the name of the the, the um, bank that you were working for? Merrill Lynch. So he was at Merrill Lynch every, in the summers. And then when he left Morgan, he worked there, went on to get his MBA at NYU Stern and worked for Goldman Sachs for seven years. And then at some point, which I'm sure he'll get into, he left Morgan and went and opened up his own spot, uh, Momentum Advisors. Yes which he's been at since 2012. So that's, yeah, seven years. Seven years there and seven years here. So, and also, I don't know how, I don't know when you started your show, but he has a show on Sirius XM called Momentum Advisors, which is on Sundays at 11. Is that correct? Correct. How long have you been doing that? We just hit our two-year anniversary. That's great. Congratulations, Going into man. year three. Got that's, extended. That's, that's big. God is good. That's big. His partner's in the building. What's up, Tiff? Appreciate you. She's not on the mic today, but uh, behind, as they say, behind every man. Well, you know the rest of the sentence, so we're glad she's here. So, Alan, my, my listeners know what the show is about. My new listeners, I'll just say that I'm a true believer that the truth is the only tool that can be used for true freedom, right? When we ignore the truth, we get stuck. When we accept the truth, we can move forward. And my life has told me this, and so that's why I'm doing this show. So, tell my people... Personal and professional truth. Actually, we'll we'll start with let's start with personal. Something that you either were not aware of or that you ignored that once you accepted it pushed you beyond and you were able to to flourish in that area. Before I do that, uh-huh. say cool. Yes. Say coolio. <laughs> Dr. Gathers. Yes. I just gotta say how proud I am of you. Okay. Thank You're you. a person who I've admired from the moment I met you all the way through today. You're just an amazing brother. Thank you. You're a doctor, 
you're an actor, you're a podcaster, you're a producer, you're someone who really is living in his gift. And that's rare. There's so many people that avoid their gifts. Mm. There's so many people that are almost ashamed of their gift, the way they treat it. Mm. And you're someone who's really just letting all, letting it all out, man. <laughs> you're really expressing, like you're, you're really living up to your highest and best use in so many different ways. I don't know that there's a side of you that you're not actively pursuing. And that's just a treat to know about, to watch. And I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of this podcast. Yeah, I started getting into it. I started with the last week's episode. I'm going back and back and back. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. Because we haven't seen each other in a long it's time. It's been a minute. We, so, I saw you this summer for the first time in a yes, minute. I think that bef- the time before that I saw you was like outside of Goldman when you had first started. So it's like many minutes, it's like a while ago. I should have brought the, my photo book with me. I have a photo of you on a blue, I think it's a Chrysler in front of... <laughs> We called our dorm the new building, new even building. though it was had a name, but right. it was new for the canvas at the time. Right. And uh, yeah, I've, you've always been in my heart and mind, man. I'm sorry that we lost touch, and I'm just glad to, to be reconnected with you. Yeah. Getting into the truth. So I had a revelation in college. It will seem simple, but it was so profound for me. Yeah. My college roommate, Mervyn Bourne. Oh, Mervyn. Yeah. Who you know. Yeah. Who's an attorney in D.C. We were roommates from junior year on, and- we were both at Morgan on scholarships, academic scholarships, and we had to maintain a 3.0. Right. I did my best to maintain exactly a 3.0. <laughs> right. I viewed any extra as a waste. Mm. My first semester with Merv, Merv says to me, I got a 3.9 this semester. Mm. I pulled Merv to the side. I said, 3.9, bro, you wasted 0.9. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? That's, that's extra partying. That's extra women. (laughs) Like, dude, what are you doing? And Merv said to me, I just did my best. Why don't you do your best? Oh, shit. At this point, I'm 20 years old. No one had ever told me to do my best. I was told to get good grades. Yeah. I was told to go to college. My parents never told me to do my best. From that moment on, my life changed. Mm. My grades went from a 3.0 I started getting three sixes, three sevens, three eights. Mm. I applied myself to every single thing that I did, whether it be an on-campus business idea, my career, my extracurriculars. I got serious about life from that moment forward. And I'll tell you, I've been extremely blessed to start a business, to raise a family. And through all this, my wife doesn't work. I've got three kids. Like, We, I've been blessed, but it all came from this one truth wow. of doing your best. Because if you think about it, there's so much in life that's judged on a, on a relative basis, right? Like if you've got a, a test and the top score you can get is 100, what if you really could have gotten a 130? Right. They're not giving yeah. you the extra 30 points. No. So you start to learn how to just pull back enough just to get the good grade. And if you think about it, we are given so many low expectations, not because they want little from us, because it's all they know. Like our parents said, go to college. My parents said, be a lawyer or a doctor. Interesting. I'm in business. (laughs) My parents thought I was nuts, (laughs) that I'm wasting my career. They trust me to make good decisions. But what I'm getting at is that we're not told to do our best. We're given low expectations as a people. And it's because our parents, not that they don't love us, it's, that, it's just that they're doing the best that they know. Right. And I love them for it. But we need to start telling our kids, telling our adults, because I was an adult when I learned this lesson. Yeah. Do your best. Yeah. Only you know how good, you, how good your best is. Mm. There's so many times where you can skate. In medical school, yeah. you can skate. Now, look, I hope that I have a doctor that didn't skate, that didn't skate. It's hard to skate in medical school. What I'm saying is, yeah, do you have to get a hundred? Well, I went. So at GW was pass fail. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. (laughs) That's the ultimate skate. (laughs) Pass fail. Pass fail is a skate. And that's what I'm getting at. Right. Like, so we've got to teach people to do their best, not not to hold back, because when you do your best. The sky's the limit. And sometimes your best is just working hard to make up for what you don't have in talent and ability. 
And that's yeah. what I do. Yeah. Like the easiest thing is working hard. The yeah. hard thing is to be born with more God-given talent. The hard thing is to be six, eight and be able to naturally, you know, jump 40 inches or whatever. But right. like the guys that I respect are the ones that work hard. Cause that's the, it's the easiest and the hardest thing that you can possibly do is do your best and work hard. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, because if you think about it, there's so many people that are talented, right? But don't apply themselves. Yeah. Now, how many talented people that you, do you know that are not successful? Yeah. Simply just Sometimes lack of hard work. the most talented people are not successful. Yeah. And that's a yeah. shame. Yeah. Basically, doing the, doing the best that you can always in all things. Absolutely. And then another blessing I had, this was a, a, a truth that... I got in the form of a card. I got a card. Oh, yeah. No, no, save that one. Save that one. Okay. Because I'm getting to that. I got a lot of truths, I'm getting bro. to that. I'm getting okay. to that. So don't, don't give that one up yet. Uh, I know what you're you going to say. All right. So that was your personal. All right. Tell, give us, give us a, the professional. And you're from triple sevens to momentum and everything in between. Yeah. So my next truth is really just about just following a dream, like going for your dreams. Like, I think a lot of us have dreams. And sometimes those dreams can frustrate us. <laughs> sometimes those dreams become inconvenient. Sometimes it's easier to adjust your dream than it is to adjust your life. Right, adjust yourself, yeah. I was guilty of that. Like my lifelong dream was to be an entrepreneur. I got a taste of it at Morgan State. My first business was actually as a barber. Okay, which, right, right, which I know. My head knows well. Yes. yes. You were one okay. of my faithful clients. That's and right. I appreciate that. Initially, <laughs> with me cutting hair by myself, then I, I had a little shop. I had five or six barbers. Yep. I had yep. girls braiding hair. Yep. That's right. That's the, right. That's right. We used to do right. the, the kitchen cleanup committee special for the ladies. <laughs> we used to do eyebrows. But each that. entrepreneurial venture built another one. And Morgan State University in Baltimore became my experiment lab for entrepreneurship. Like we started, I can name seven or eight businesses that we started as college students, mm. which is why I was so impressed by you at your store. Mm. Cause I'm like, man, cause if you think about it, entrepreneurship is the idea that I can think of something, mix it with my own labor and produce money right. on the other end. Right. It's creative. If people, people don't see it as an artist, I see it. Business yeah. is creative. 100%. Absolutely. So the truth is like, you have to go for your dreams. Like you can't just push them to the side. I had this dream of being an entrepreneur, but then I went corporate. Like you, that's what they teach you to do yep. in college. They teach you to go to the career fair. They teach you to go get a job. And I did that. And the more I worked, I realized that they're setting you up to be on a, almost like a treadmill. Like, and there's a little piece of cheese in front of you and you're <laughs> never going to get that joint. <laughs> right? Because if you think about it, like they're teaching you how to sell your time. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they're time teaching you how to sell your time at a higher price. But no matter how much time you sell, you've got less time to sell. And I got so comfortable, not just working corporate. I went back, got an MBA. I was making great money. I tripled my income by going to graduate school. Mm -hmm, of course. I used to have a goal sheet. And my goal was at the end, it was always start a business. <laughs> I made a new goal sheet and just pushed it out further. 10 more years. Right. I instead put on my goal sheet, I want to become a managing director. I want to become a partner. Yes. I, want to, I want to become more and more inside Entrenched. of this company. Right. And eventually I said to myself, this is not what I want. Like, this is what I've pivoted to. This is what everybody else around me wants, but this is not like what I set out to do. Yeah. I never really drank the Kool-Aid like that. Like they served it. Like I took a little sip, but like what I'm getting at is that you've got to follow your dreams. You've got to know that God gave you all of the skills, all of the talents, all of the ability that you need to be successful and to take care of yourself. And shame on you if you're not using those talents, pursuing that dream. Yeah. Tell the people the story about the day that you decided I'm done. I'm done with Goldman. I think it's important because it says something, it says a lot about you as a man, but it also speaks to what you just said, that there was that thing that finally was like, all right. It's funny, man. Like a, a buzzword in, in corporate America is diversity and inclusion, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of companies that want diversity. When I say they want it, like they say they want it. Right. And they say. they say that they want you, 
but then they treat you a little different than what their mouth says, right? And so I was in this situation where I just wasn't feeling appreciated already. And I'll just leave it at that. And, and okay. by the way, Goldman was a great firm. Yep. It's a firm that I still do business with. Some of my best friends are from there. Some of the smartest people I've ever worked with are at Goldman. So I'm not putting Goldman down at right. all. I started to feel like I wasn't appreciated. And then after already feeling like I'm not appreciated, multiple years in a row, I'm watching Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs at the time, testify before Congress. And at the time, Goldman was involved in a transaction where they told one group of people that we expect this investment to go up, and they told the other, we expect it to go down. <laughs> Maxine Waters, Auntie Maxine. Auntie Maxine. <laughs> like Wall Street was a curse word at this time. This is 2010. It was after the financial crisis. And they said, Mr. Blankfein, didn't you have a fiduciary duty to do what was in the best interest of your client? I'm watching, I'm sitting on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs. I'm watching with bated breath, elbow to elbow with all the folks on my floor. I'm expecting him to say, yes, yes, right. we had a fiduciary duty to do what was in the best interest of, of, your, of the client. He said, no. And I, said, <laughs> right. I said, no. Yeah, like, what it, am I doing here? It felt right. like somebody had scratched a chalkboard for me. Yeah. Because I thought that at Goldman Sachs, where clients entrusted us and trusted me, with their life savings, like we had a $10 million minimum to have an account there. Wow. $10 million is a lot of loot. Oh, yeah. My last client at Goldman sold the business. It was actually a, a, a medical device business. He sold it to GE Healthcare. $300 million. $330 million. Right. Wired your boy $100, $100 million, million. To, right. to pick stocks for him. How do you know all this stuff? Because I'm a researcher, my brother. Wow. So <laughs> it's called pre preparation. <laughs> Preparation is the enemy of defeat, by the way. Right. One of my favorite sayings. At that moment that I said, this is not right. Like I thought I had a fiduciary duty to these clients. If someone had asked me, do you have a, a duty to do what's in your client's best interest? I would have said yes. Right. I would not have known any better. I would have gotten in trouble at work. Wall Street has figured out that by not being a fiduciary, they can make a lot more, more money. money. Yeah. By not being a fiduciary, it means that they could sell you the same exact thing, but at two, two or three different prices. <laughs> There's a fiduciary rule that in the Obama administration, it got proposed. They stripped it down and they stripped it down some more and they launched something else called the best interest rule. It's hundreds of, of pages long. Guess what? One word is missing from the document. Fiduciary. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so I set up a company like I, I quit the same month as that Goldman Sachs wow. interview. I wow. quit. I was like, yo, you're already treating me like you don't want me here, even though you say you do. I now start to pay attention to some of the, you know, what's going on in the kitchen. And I'm realizing, oh, so this is why we get paid more if you go in this investment versus that investment. And I always say we get paid the same percentage, which is true, but it's on a greater commission, right? Like, so sure, I started, I it started it, yeah. to, to dawn on me. And then I said, and we're not fiduciaries, meaning like the clients really need to be, they need to treat us with a long, at an arm's length. Yeah. And, and I said, I don't think clients want that. Like we just went through the greatest financial crisis since the great depression. And now what I'm learning is that client, you also can't trust me because I've got my own best interest that I put before right. yours. And right. so I quit. I didn't start the company immediately. I had a mentor who started a company called Fiduciary Management Group. Of mm -hmm. course, I went to go work there. Of course. Had fiduciary in the title. This firm embraced the idea of being a fiduciary. This guy was my mentor for years and years. We worked together for about two years. And then- And you said, yeah, it's time. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> Actually, I wasn't ready, but I said, I'm going to start anyway. Right. And right. that's Momentum Advisors. Right. One, one step, one step in front of the other, right? journey of a thousand steps starts with one step. That's great because what it shows is kind of like all along you wanted to be an entrepreneur. So that was always your dream. And then you had that moment of truth, yeah. right? It's like, can I continue to do this? It's almost like the devil's work. Can I continue to, to, to work in this manner? Yeah. You already had the entrepreneurship in the back of your mind. It's like, you know what? Let me, let me try to do something that's, that's right. And I, I, I like that. You've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and respect the person you see. Yeah. And like, look up to that person, like admire that person and be yes, like, yo, right. 
That's, that's my dude my right there. <laughs> that's my guy. You right. don't want to be looking in the oh, mirror girl. like, ah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you have to do that? Right. At least I got paid, though. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Nah. Mm-mm. Okay. So when I started Momentum, that was the goal, man. It was to, number one, to deliver the same caliber of experience that clients got at Goldman Sachs. Number two yeah. is to do it in a fiduciary fashion. That's what we're doing, man. And I'll, I'll tell you, we've created a collection of corporate misfits Folks who similarly were extremely successful but felt underappreciated. Our firm is very diverse. We've got black folks, oh, Asian yeah. folks, yeah. Hispanic yeah. folks. We speak like five or six different languages. We're in three cities. We're managing hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm not saying any of this to glorify me. It's really to go back to the point about truth. And this is God. Like this right. is all God. This is God blessing me. By, and I had to do my part, which was to follow that dream. Of course. And to do the work. Like this oh, didn't absolutely. just happen, right? Of course. All right, let's jump into some questions. What do you think makes a good financial advisor, right? Like what steps should people take when they're searching for one, you know, trying to organize their money and get and get things in order? The first thing I always say is you got to find someone who is a fiduciary. Not just like they feel like they, they're going to look <laughs> yeah, out for you. Because like I said, I would have said it. Like put it in writing and make sure that your compliance has reviewed this. Because right. What I learned after the fact is that there were a lot of little things that were done to make sure that Goldman Sachs would never be construed as a fiduciary. The reason why they don't want to be viewed that way is they could be sued, right? The the difference between suitability and fiduciary would be, and this is an example I give a lot. Imagine you just finished running a mile. You were exercising. I could offer you water or I could offer you champagne. They're (laughs) They're both suitable. Right, right. I can't offer you cornbread piece of cake that's not suitable like it's such a low bar terrible yeah right it's such a low bar and think about your profession as a doctor your patients a lot of fiduciaries imagine if they found out that you actually got paid to push drugs like you got a commission you got paid more if they went on you know percocet versus tylenol imagine if and and by the way some of that's coming out and of course you're not involved in that but there's conflicts of interest big time And folks are getting wrapped up in this. And yet in the financial services industry, there's no repercussions for it. So you really need them to put it in writing. Make sure it goes through their compliance. Got it. Make sure that that relationship is is solid. The crazy thing about that is you've now excluded 90% of the financial advisors with that one question. (laughs) Not at Morgan Stanley, not at UBS, not at Merrill Lynch, not at Goldman Sachs, not at you name it. They're not fiduciaries. And they make sure they're not fiduciaries. They pay their lobbyists millions of dollars to make sure that they don't get tapped with this word fiduciary. You'll get a lot of financial advisors who say, I basically am a fiduciary. Basically. Oh, More like or less. That. Yeah. In quotes. All right. Then why not be a fiduciary? <laughs> right. It's because they want to be able to charge. It's crazy. Like, people don't realize this about Wall Street. And I, I get in trouble all the time because I tell the secrets. Like, imagine going to Applebee's and there's a cover charge to get in Applebee's. Okay. $20 to get in. (laughs) Okay. And then you get in and they're like, all right, here's the menu. And there's a price next to everything on the menu. How do you feel as a... Yeah, nah. I don't feel great. Okay. Now, if you also find out that the guy next to you didn't pay the cover charge and your steak says $20 next to it and this guy's steak says $7 next to it, how do you feel now? Even worse. That's why Wall Street won't accept the fiduciary rule. They've got to be able to sell the same product at two or three different prices. And that's wrong. So you've got to find out, number one, if they're a fiduciary. Number two, you've got to look at what their educational credentials are. There's like literally the becoming a financial advisor is among the easiest jobs you could ever become. Yeah. The bar is very low, right? You need a Series 7 and that's it, right? You could study for this test inside of like three months or two months and you could be an advisor. And And I found this out the hard way. Like I took the test way before I became a financial advisor. And because I took the test, I thought I was licensed. Like I thought I was, it's like getting your driver's license. You think you can go on the highway. Like you actually can. Right. I thought because I passed my test that I knew how to invest. Right. I then lost my shirt. Right. And then I was like, (laughs) oh, I got to go back and get an MBA. Right. Right. And I studied finance. And that's where I got my education. Then I got my education again as an investor at Goldman and I got it again, you know, and again and again. And so I would next look at your educational credentials. A lot of times folks are like highly educated. They're doctors, they're lawyers. They've got master's degrees themselves and yet they entrust their life savings with folks that (laughs) don't have anywhere near the credentials. There's that one commercial where they bring in a paid actor 
to be like, yeah, hey, I'm a financial advisor and blah, blah, blah. Would you trust this guy? And everybody says yes. And they find out, nah, dude's a waiter. Like, that's how easy wow. it is. Literally, like, being a financial advisor is like the career default for so many people. If I'm not successful at this or that, I could always be a financial mm, advisor. And I, and, I, and I hate to denigrate the profession, but it's just true. It's an yeah. industry that brings in people from all walks of life. And that's, a be- that's the beauty of it. But the sad thing is a lot of folks, it's like a revolving door. And so you really want to know, like, are you really educated? Do you know more than me? Right. Have you right. been doing it for a while? Right. Right. And I don't mean they've got to be in it as long as me. I've been licensed now for 20 years. I'm not saying that, but like, I don't want a guy that just, just took his test three, three days ago. <laughs> Number, the, the final thing is like, you got to have a connection with the person. Okay. It doesn't you mean matter. like on an energy level, just like yeah, the vibe. Got, yeah. The relationship that you have with your advisor is like a, it's a, a mechanism for communication that if there's no relationship, the communication breaks down. I no longer trust you. I'm scared to go to you with certain questions and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. So number one, you got to be a fiduciary. Number two, you've got to have some credentials. I'd love to see a a person that's been an advisor for at least five years because most folks, you know, don't make it past two or three. Mm. And then finally, there's got to be some sort of personal connection. You got to be able to talk to this person, relate to them. I'm not saying they've got to look like you, but you've got to have some common ground and the ability to communicate with them freely. Let's talk about children educating children about mm. money, right? You're, you're a father. I'm a father. I have three. You have three. Three also. Can't be beaten in that one, man. <laughs> I, you got three. I have three. That's right. Just let me know if you have more because I'm going to stop. I don't I'm think done. so. I think I'm, I think I'm done. I think yeah, I'm, I'm done. done but my two, my, my oldest one, she's uh, 15 and I got a two years and, and almost four. So the, the younger ones, I'm all of them I'm going to talk to about money, but yeah. the, the two younger ones, I'm going to start kind of early. What would you recommend to listeners, you know, if they want to really get into the truth about money for their kids, you know, just really giving them that education? Because that's the one thing I always complain about. Like, I didn't really learn proper money management probably till 33, 34, you know, after studying myself. Why is it not something we learn in elementary school or any any of these schools? We don't really learn that. There's a lot of lessons that aren't direct, like here's what a stock is, right? Like, You really got to start with kids with concepts. Like the first concept that kids need to understand is the value of money. How much does stuff cost? Yeah. Your kid wants something. Like I I love taking my kid to a store and being like, you've got $20. Get whatever you want as long as you got it for $20 or less. Okay. And if y'all want to combine, there's three of them. (laughs) Y'all want to come up with a $60 gift? Knock yourself out. It, it gets them to now understand that things cost money and that it, it is a scarce resource and it can only go but so far. That's number one. The second lesson they've got to learn is how to make money. Money doesn't come from just putting that little plastic card <laughs> in the ATM and money just comes out. And kids might actually think that if that's all that's they see. Yeah, it's great. They've got to understand how to make money. And they also got to understand that it's not just made by selling your time. I love to see kids get involved in entrepreneurship and kids actually come up with the best entrepreneurial ideas, way better than adults. Adults overcomplicated. They write (laughs) business plans. (laughs) Kids will be like, yo, I want to sell some ice cream. Right. Or I want to, you know, I want to see that kid that did the bow ties. You ever seen that little kid? Mm -mm. There's this kid, you know, he's a millionaire from bow ties. He like bow ties. Kids come up with the best ideas. Yeah. Put your kid in a position to develop an entrepreneurship, a love for entrepreneurship. Because if they can learn that lesson, that I could think of something, mix it with my labor and create cash on the other end, they already know the value of money. They know how long, how far $20 goes. It's addictive and they'll start to come up with ways to make money. Yeah. The final lesson that I think is, is super important. So we talked about the value of money, how to get money. They got to understand that money's not just for spending. Right. Money's right. also for right. saving. Right. Money's for investing. Money's for charity. Yeah. One thing I talk about a lot is having three jars in your house and writing the word saving, investing, and and charity on it. They need to think about filling up each one of those buckets. The saving bucket is deferred gratification. And I think that lesson of deferred gratification is a valuable lesson for adults and kids alike. I think if you can tell yourself, no, not now, I, I need to wait a little bit, that's a valuable lesson. Yeah. Our problem as an economy, like we, we've, we're based on consumer spending. We've got a huge debt problem. I mean, we've got $12 trillion in, in consumer debt. Wow. 
spread between mortgages, student loans, credit cards, personal loans, auto loans. Yeah. It's a lot of debt. Yeah. All that people stuff. are profiting off of. That's, oh, big time. It's not just debt sitting there, right? You oh, paying, big time. you know, yeah. If people can learn how to defer. So savings is for deferred gratification. Investing is for those entrepreneurial endeavors. My baby boy the other day took some paper and cut it up and sold it to my neighbor. <laughs> okay. Right? And the neighbor bought it to be nice, I'm right, sure. But like, right, he's right. like, That's yo, That's interesting. I could take paper, I could cut it up, I could decorate it. And then my daughter's like, oh, I could help you make it look prettier. Now they got a little paper business, right? <laughs> they Give them a chance to do that. Yeah. My first up. time doing anything entrepreneurial was in the seventh grade. I was selling blow pops at the nice. locker. Nice. When the blue blow pop came out and right. they didn't sell it at the store by my school, you I knew it. where to get it. I was the hookup. I just walked around with a blue blow pop in my mouth. Everybody's like, where'd you get it? I got one right here. <laughs> I paid a quarter. I sold it for 50 cents. Like they need to have those opportunities right. to do that. Yeah. And then lastly, that charity bucket can be used for putting money in the collection plate at church. Yeah. But I like to use it when there's somebody less fortunate so that the kid can see the direct impact. Like there's a guy or a gal who is out here begging. And unfortunately, like, Poverty is a byproduct of capitalism. Kids need to understand that some people are going to win and some are going to lose. And the ones that lost, it's not all because they screwed up and that it could be you. And they need to understand that you've got to be thinking about more than just yourself. So put together those three buckets and make sure you're using that money for those purposes. That's how you teach kids about money. Yeah, I like, I like how you broke it down in terms of the concepts because, you know, kids... That's what they need. They need something big picture, but simple. Yeah. And uh, it's important. You know, I, I wish, you know, our parents, at least my parents, you know, gave me a lot of great things and, and, and some things they lacked in. And that was one of the things that I wish that I got more, you know, info on a lot earlier. Just, just money management. You know how my dad taught me about how to earn money? My pops used to give me $5 for every A I got. Interesting. And he would okay. charge me $5 for every A I did not get. <laughs> so if I came wow. home with three A's and two B's, I right. got... A $15 credit, and then I got right, $5, basically. Yeah, I got $5, <laughs> right? But again, that wasn't teaching me to do my best. That was teaching yeah. me to get A's. And teaching you to be But it taught me the value of getting that money so right. that I could buy video games. Back in the day, I could buy a Nintendo game for 20 bucks. Right. So I knew if I wanted a Nintendo game every, every marking period, what we had back in the day, I needed right. to get at least, if I had six classes, I could do four. No, I needed to do, you know, five A's, and I could afford one B. Right. Yeah, exactly. I just kind of, I remember um, actually me and, and Nishad, who you know, my cousin, I was like 10 when we was in, um was actually around your way in uh, Piscataway in South Plainfield. It was this big blizzard. It was huge, like mm -hmm. snow, maybe like six feet. And we went out there and we shoveled for about five hours and we came back with $80. Hey. And I just remember thinking, whoa, <laughs> it's like, what the like, like we, and we split it. Like I was, I was, no, 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 I'm sorry. I got $80. We made $160 in five yeah. hours. I got $80. We, we split it. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is crazy. This is control I wanted. That was like $70. I can get my controller now, Yeah, you know, but that thing of putting, you know, your mind working with somebody to grind and then, you know, being able to get some income. It, it, like had, it had $16 an hour, my brother. Bro, we. That was good. That, that was, was good money. That was great money. That was great money. So. But you learned that that's entrepreneurship. Dollars. Yeah. That's yeah, it. Imagine yeah, if your up. parents charge you for the shovel. I mean, like, that's what you got to be thinking about. Right. I want to talk to you about, so one thing for me, as I got older, my idea of money changed. Mm. And I want to talk to you just about what would you, how would you recommend? And we talked about the kids before, before adults to sort of change their money meter. So I partnered with this, I own four um, pain management clinics, one in the city and three in Long Island. I love it. My I partner is this Jewish dude, right? He's, he's, how old is Eric? Eric's about... 58. And I remember, and I'm, I'm 43. And I remember um, we were talking, this was like maybe six years ago, we were just talking about money. And he's like, oh yeah, it's, it's 20 grand. Uh, it was nothing. And, and I'm just listening to how he's talking about money. And it, it like started to dawn on me like, oh, maybe 30 grand is actually not that much. Maybe 40 grand is not that much. And then I started looking at like even my income at the time, like, hmm, okay, I'm actually doing okay. So it, it really changed my view on money just in terms of what's a lot of money and what's not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes we, you know, our education around money is so bad, so poor that mm -hmm. our perception gets skewed. 
So that was my experience. That's how just partnering That's, with somebody yeah. that, that had a different view of money is how I kind of got my money meter up. But little. think about your first experiences with money. Oh, yeah. It was from a position of scarcity. Scarcity, absolutely. It's, there's not enough of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like my mom, who grew up dirt poor, my mom grew up putting cardboard in her shoes to cover up the holes. Wow. She grew up with an empty cupboard. My mom could make $20 last for a month but you give her $200 or 2000 and she's going to struggle wow. because of her orientation to money was around scarcity. And so we now need to think about money differently. We've got to think about it in those same buckets. We got to think about it in terms of savings, investing, and we got to think about charity. And I think, I think, you know, a lot of folks are good with charity, but so many people look at an investment as just like a gamble. Like we, and when I say we, I'm, I'm now talking about the, the African-American community. There's a view that an investment is just so risky. It's like you might as well go to the poker table or the craps table or the <laughs> slot machine. Mm. And in reality, you've got to be able to invest your money so that your money's making money. And when you can get to the point where your money's making more money than you're making while selling your time, that's when your life options become way different. That's the lesson that we've got to get to. And at that point, 30,000 is not that much. Right. Especially when you start thinking about the return on 30,000. Right. And the return right. on the return on the return. And that's right. the beauty of compound interest, man. Right. It's like, if more people would at least, like I'm not saying people need to understand a stock market, bond market, futures Treasuries, options. Right. I'm saying you got to understand compound interest. That's it. Yeah. The fact that if I take $100 today, I get a 10% return. I now have $110. Now $110 gets a 10% return. Now I made an extra 11 because my $10 made a return. That compounding can triple or quadruple or five-fold your money over time. Like investing is really nothing more than mixing your, your, your money with time and an opportunity, but it's the time aspect, right. right? And so people that are accustomed to investing, they just think about return. That's it. They don't think about like, I'm going to lose all my money. They think about how much am I going to make back? Like, and, and so we've got to be in some different conversations. I'll tell you one thing I'm really proud of. Our show on SiriusXM, Momentum Advisors, airs every Sunday morning. Like, We just talk about, we talk like this. We talk about mm. how to build wealth. And the main vehicle we talk about is entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with Grant Cardone? No. Grant Cardone's a real estate investor, but his main thing is, you know, people are always talking about, you got to save more. You got to spend less. He's like, expletive that. He's like, fuck that. He's like, <laughs> you got to make more money. That's yeah. that's your problem. You yeah, got to make my, more money. Yeah, straight up. Make more money and then all those other problems go away. So yeah. entrepreneurship is is huge and I'm really passionate about it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm blessed, man. I have been blessed and this is all God, man. I'm a partner in five fitness centers Oh wow. in three states. So I have retro fitness in Catonsville, Maryland, Atlanta, Maryland. Rockville, Maryland, Horsham, Pennsylvania, and I got a Max Challenge in West Orange. So wow. that's that's five in three states. Wow. Then I have two dry cleaners, one in Waldorf, Maryland, one in Bowie, Maryland. I signed a deal with my business partner, Tiffany. We're going to open up 20 more in Atlanta. I'm negotiating a, a deal, um, another Maryland deal right now. And this is all God. Wow. And, and You like Maryland. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a good market. Now, but what I'm getting at, man, is like wow. my kids are starting to see, like yeah. I've brought my kids to the to to the gyms and to the dry cleaners. And yeah. I'm like, yo, you see that guy over there buying a smoothie? Like, yo, that's going into profit that's going to yeah. go in your pocket that's going to help you go to school one day. Wow. Yeah. I want my kids to inherit buildings and businesses. I want them to have different career opportunities when they come out. Like I want them to be like, yo, I could go work for this company and I want them to go work outside the family business, but I want them to know they could always come back and, and work inside the family business in, in some way or another. I want them to know, like my, for me, it's like not about having as much money as possible in the bank. To me, life is about having, spending your time properly, like spending your time in a way that that is fulfilling to you. Yeah. That's what wealth really is. Because you think about it, like time is the one thing that every day we have less and less of it. That's why, again, I hate this concept of, and again, I'm not shaming anybody for working a job, sure. but like, yo, you're selling your time and your time is running short. Right. Life is short, man. Like we, we got friends that have yep. 
passing Pass away, away yep. unexpectedly. Yep, unexpected. You know what yeah, I mean? My and grandmother so, just passed. She was 90. God, God bless God her. God bless man. her. Yeah, yeah, God bless her, man. Yeah. So we've got to figure out ways to like change this equation where we're not just selling time. And selling time, if it's a means to an end, I'm all for it. Like right. if you can learn something that you can now do on your own, I'm all for it. If right. you can work long enough to, you know, save some cash to be able to invest it in something, like I'm all for it. But right. like if your goal is to just keep selling and selling and selling, I'm just saying like you, you can retire fine and there's plenty of people who've done it. My dad did that, but my dad also invested. And I'll tell you that the investment is what helped him to retire at 50 years old. Wow. You know, yeah. and to see that as a kid, I'm like, oh, I got to be done before 50 now. <laughs> you know, but again, to me, yeah. wealth is, your, is how you spend your time. Yeah. And you do have those. I was listening to an interview you guys did. You were talking about some people that made 50000 a year and had like a million a million cash liquid, yeah. you know, after many, 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 many years yeah. to, to invest. And it's crazy. They didn't. I love that story. Yeah. It's, there's so many stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. These folks were just disciplined. Yeah. Here's yeah, some here's yeah. some commonalities yeah. that we saw. Straight up. They no, don't buy no paper, cable. Yeah. They don't buy paper plates. They don't buy plastic forks. You go to their house, they got, they're going to bring out some dishes and they're going to wash those dishes when they're done. They're not buying lunch, dinner, and breakfast out. Yeah. They're going to cook breakfast. They're going to cook. They're going to eat it, you know, right before they get in the car. Right. They're going to bring their lunch, which is leftovers from dinner last night. And they're going <laughs> to eat dinner at home. There's so much savings in, and by the way, that's way healthier. Right. Yes. Like, they also, they bought their homes. They lived in them for a long time. They paid off the mortgage over time. They might have upgraded to, to, to bigger homes, but they were really disciplined in, in paying down the debt. They were religious about putting money into their 401ks at work. I mean, it's the basic stuff that we're, we're messing up. They didn't yeah. borrow from their 401k. They no, did no premium cable channels. Some, some of them <laughs> might have lived a little. I'll tell you, it's funny. Growing up, man, I, I, didn't get, I didn't have HBO. I didn't have cable. Until I graduated college, I moved back home and I was like, mom and dad, I'm back home. I'm paying you rent, but I'm going to need some cable. I'll pay for it. And right. that's my first, I was 22 years old when I got cable. Yeah. One thing, another lesson on money, by the way, I'm sorry. Like I, I talk no, too much. Cool. You can stop me. My pops charged me rent every summer. I was in college. He charged me rent every month. I lived at home after college. $500 a month. My dad charged me so much rent when I was in college, I had to get a second job just to pay my rent. And so I'd be working at Merrill Lynch during the day. I'd work at the mall at night. And I had wow. two jobs literally all the way up until all the way through business school. I've always had two jobs. My first time not having two jobs was when I was had an MBA making six figures at Goldman Sachs. It was the first time I didn't have two jobs. Wow. But when I got married, my dad gave me all the money back. Wow. It was like wow. $12,000. Wow. I had never had $12,000 at one time mm. at that point in my life. Mm. And I'm like, man, like my dad never made six figures, but retired a millionaire. Yeah. And it's really just being disciplined is all it is. Like you can just put a little bit on it every month and be consistent. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can retire a millionaire without making a ton of money. It's okay. possible. Okay. All right. So we're going to get to that, uh, this quote now. So when you graduated from B school, right, you got this card that said, this is a Maya Angelou quote, don't make money your goal. Instead, Instead pursue, pursue the things, things you love to do and do them so well that people can't take their eyes off. You. Right. So my question is, what do you, it's, it's interesting because it's like, don't make money your goal, but you, literally money sort of is your goal, the management of it. But what do you love about money management? You know, and why do you, what do you sort of do on a daily basis to meet that goal of being exceptional? So I'm going to ask you the same question. Okay. What do you love about being a doctor? Solving problems. What else? The interaction. I think there's the interaction with, with people. Okay. Um, Helping people? I mean, you can work at McDonald's and help people, but I think it's, it's more just when somebody is coming to you in their time of need, there's a little bit more of a sense of urgency than if they're coming to you because they want a, a Big Mac, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's being able to be there for people in a time of need. I mean, I see people when they're sick. I see people when they're dying. I see people when they're dead, you know what I mean? I see people when they're, when they're born. So I see the whole, the whole spectrum, but it's more for me because, you know, being a doctor is, you know, 30 different specialties. My specialty, emergency medicine, it's about problem solving. So know, that's why, that's why I like being a financial advisor. Everything you just said, I like solving problems. And I, and I don't believe every problem is solved with a product. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the yeah. things that's broken about the financial services industry. If you got a problem, they figure out what they can sell you off the shelf, mm. whether it be life insurance, a mutual fund. So number one, I like solving problems. Number two, I like helping people in, in my way, right? right like right. I could help people. I worked at Roy Rogers back in the day. That was my first <laughs> job. Like I could help people with that, right. but it's using my best talent to help people. Just like you're using your best talent in terms of medicine to help people, right? right? I'm sure you have a way of explaining things to people that help them to understand it better than maybe some of your colleagues, I would imagine, just from knowing how you are. Right. That's one of the things that I, I take pride in as uh, well. Like yeah, I, I got into this yeah. field to help people, man. Like right. I, I felt like this was one of the few careers, man, where I can take the gifts that God gave me and I could glorify God by helping people. And, and I, I view myself as a servant yeah. and, and my job is to help people reach their financial goals. Okay. My job is to help them to create wealth, to make sure that that wealth gets transitioned on to their future generations. It's to help make sure that their kids are, are, are cared for. Yeah. When mom and dad aren't around to make sure that the kids are going to be straight, that they know about money, they know how to make it, how to protect it. That's my job. And, and I love it, man. Like I, mm. I've helped. The thing I'm most proud of, man, is like I, I've worked with every client under the sun, man. I mean, from folks in the NFL and NBA Folk, we have a number of clients who are exonerated from, they serve prison terms for crimes they didn't commit, similar to wow. the, the Central Park Five. Yeah. They then got sued cash. and got right, yeah. uh, millions of dollars and we helped them become financially literate. Imagine going to jail for a crime you didn't do. Mm-hmm. While you were in jail, your mom died. Your kid who was born when you went in is now an adult and now you're a grandfather. Wow. And when you come out, there was no internet when you went in. There was no online banking when you went in. Yeah. There was no cell phone when you went in. <laughs> there was no ATM card. You forgot how to write a check. So what I'm getting at is like, I, I derive a lot of joy from helping these people. Mm-hmm. I derive a lot of joy. Like I have a number of NFL and NBA clients who I've helped to transition into entrepreneurship, into business ownership. I have a guy who used to dunk a basketball for a living. I was able to help him create a business. He now has multiple businesses. Hmm. He was going to go work a job as a scout making 30000 Instead, I helped him to get a job making six figures in, in corporate America after starting a business that was already Doing pr- well. producing income. Now he's about to start a private equity fund wow. investing in, in marijuana. I like the transformative nature of the information is what I'm getting at. Like okay. if I can learn something and and help someone understand how, how to use it as a tool for them. Like it just makes me smile from ear to ear, man. All right. I like that. So going back to the quote, make, don't make money your goal instead pursue the things you love to do and do them so well, people can't take their eyes off you. That's the mantra of my company. Like everybody, all the corporate misfits at my company, and there's 12 of us now, we also have an insurance business, momentum risk management. Everybody embraces that. And is the insurance business also fiduciary? So you can't sell insurance right. as a fiduciary. Insurance is, a, is one of those product types that creates a commission no matter what. The only way you could do it is to not accept a commission. <laughs> we don't like to work We're doing for free. That. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and by the way, there are some people that do that. There are some financial planners who don't accept a commission for the insurance. But Yeah, well, my, like my financial advisor, they sent me to someone else separate from them. Uh, maybe there was a... You know, there was maybe a, not. no, maybe not. Yeah. There's, there are a number of planners that don't charge, yeah. that don't accept commissions for the sale of insurance. We don't accept commissions for the sale of investments, but insurance creates a commission and it increases our nutritional value. But um, going back to the quote, Wall Street is a place that really thrives on numbers. Like every year I was at Goldman Sachs, I had an annual review. And at, at the end of my review, they said, how much new business did you bring in? How much revenue did you drum up? And that's the end of the meeting. At the end of the financial crisis, I found myself asked, like wondering and waiting for that moment when they're going to say, how well did your clients do? And the question never came up. <laughs> Every year we had a quota yeah, on how much growth we needed to bring in. Yeah. And in 08, when the assets were going down and where clients were getting killed, they increase the quota because they got to keep the numbers up. Right. And so I'm like, yo, we cannot run our business that way. No. Success is a byproduct of doing a good job for people. So we've got to focus on doing the best possible job we can for people. 
And if we're the best at what we do, we're going to grow. We can't help but grow because we're going to do a good job for people. They're going to tell their friends about us. And that's how we're going to grow. We also have a number of endowment funds, colleges, endowments. We have some, some corporations that help allow us to do their 401ks. Okay. Like this all came from just doing a good doing job right in there. one area and yeah. people will trust you to do it in another area. It's the reason why you've got not one clinic, but four. Yeah, we grew. Yeah, we grew. There's an experience that's happening where people are like, yo, I, I, you know, they trust you to open up the next location. And, and what I'm getting at is like, you can't have a business that just says, hey, I need to add 10% to my sales every year. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You got to right focus thing. on the on the, the work that's going to get your sales to increase. You got to do the right And you got to do the right thing. And I can also imagine like, there's not a lot of people that meet you in your capacity that have met other people like you. Does that make sense? Mm. Okay. So that's also part of the value that you bring. If I'm coming to you as a, you know, someone that potentially wants to invest, I may, if, and I'm a seasoned investor, I may, you know, have met with five or six other investors or work with five or six other investors, but how many are like you and in your, you know, in your capacity? And to your point, we were talking before about communicating with people, communicate the way you do. Mm. I think that's also, you know, some, some secret sauce there. Appreciate that. Yeah, some secret sauce. Stay cool. <laughs> hey, man, I appreciate you so much, man. This was fun. And I just love you, man. I just hope this ain't the last time I see you this year. Oh, man. I know, right? It's crazy. I was thinking about that. I was like, is this guy going to disappear into the ether are after you the on, show? Are you on social Dude, media? Dude, I live in Jersey, man. Are you on social media at all? Yes. All right, we got to connect. I'm on Insta. Mm. The show's on Insta. What's your, what's your Instagram? It's at the Truth Prescription. Okay. All right, I'm on Twitter at Momentum Advice. Okay. You're, You're on not Twitter. on Twitter? I'm not on the Twitters. Okay. I would like to come if 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 uh, Tiffany would allow me one of your, be in one of your shows, not be on the show, but just hang out, you know, watch you guys record it. You don't want to be on the show? I mean, that's up to y'all, but I would I would definitely, at minimum, like to just come through. You're in. <laughs> well, what we will want to talk about is these clinics, these pain management oh, clinics, course. and the idea of entrepreneurship because that's what yeah. we're all about, man. It's about sure inspiring people. Because I'm not I mean, saying this, everyone's going to run this out as well. I mean, this is a business as well. I'm partnering this. Oh, I love as well. It. I love podcast it. studio. So people need to know that, man. They need yeah. to see that. Yeah. What I love about you the most, man, is you've always been so humble, man. So blessed and yet so humble, man. It's a gift and a curse. And I appreciate you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, Alan, man. Alan, appreciate you. I'm gonna sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it.